and into the 31st chapter of this precious book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet prophesies and talks about what is happening and what will happen. He tells us what is about to happen to Israel. He is forever showing Israel and Judah who God is, what God is, and what God determines on their behalf. There is great concern, and the concern is so great that all that can be said and all that can be done for Israel is to be done, to bring them back to God. Now, there's a way of understanding the, uh, the Word of God, and we must understand that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament we see something the same but different. In the New Testament we see the Lord Jesus receiving His bride. And the bride is the church. That is those that are born again, those that come into fellowship in Christ Jesus. In the Old Testament we see God the Father and His wife, who is Israel. Who is Israel. And in the Old Testament we see that principle and in the New we see a same but a different principle. Israel is God's wife, and she is revealed that way all the way through the Old Testament. Now I want to share with you how it is that God deals with Israel, and then how we can apply that to the day in which we live, how God deals with us. In the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, we read some fascinating statements. I'm going to use the NIV, the New International Version, and from verse 1, at that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the desert. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again and you will be rebuilt O virgin Israel, again you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. Again you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. And then if you'll cast your eyes over the page a little into the same chapter but into verse 19 where the reply comes back from Israel and Judah and they say this, Verse 19, after I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him declares the Lord. The words from verse 3 are fascinating. And we have to understand something of the length and breadth of what is being said. We need to go to the original language. We need to understand the original Hebrew. For instance, we discover in verse 3 that the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What do we mean? What is meant in this piece of Scripture? We need to analyze, we need to understand. For I 
am convinced in my own heart that God loves me with an everlasting love, but what exactly does it mean? It's very well for us to stand and say, God who is all-loving and all-powerful, God who made the ends of the earth, is the creator of the ends of the earth, this God loves me, and He loves me with everlasting love, but what exactly am I talking about? It becomes very clicheistic. So if you look at the original language, you discover that the, the two words love are rather different. The first is the I love you love. The love that comes between a, hus a, a husband and a wife, between a bride and a groom, the love that comes between parent and child. I love you. It's a love. It has passion. It's a love. It has the love of men to men and women to women. It isn't a, a homosexual love. It is a pure love. It is a love of person to person. It has within its confines something of God, but only as it's reproduced in a person that is loving God. The word to love. In the first instance, I have loved you with everlasting love. I love you. That's it. And that's all it says. And we can't build anything upon that. That is what it says. It's a passion. It's a love. It's an affection. It's an expression. But that's it. And that's exactly what God is saying to Israel. I love you. There is a passion in my love. There is a direction in my love. There is an equalization in my love. I love you. That's what God is saying to Israel. But then he says, I love you with an everlasting love. And the second word love comes out. And in the English it's lost. All the meaning is gone because we used one word to express the same things. But as you thumb through your Hebrew, you discover that the second word to love means this. It's first written in the, in the feminine gender. And what God is saying is, I love you with a mother love. I love you as a mother loves you. And I love you with that mother love, that great caring, that nourishing, that holding, that being so concerned over you. I fuss over you with a mother love. And God is saying here to Israel, I have a mother love toward you, and that mother love is passionate. That mother love is protective. That mother love is complete. That mother love is absolutely everlasting. Now let's see the word everlasting. If you look, when on a prairie, out into infinity, when you can see as far as your eye can register detail, then everlasting starts and goes on. The Apostle Paul spoke of this love. He said, there is a love that is of God and it's so long you can't measure it. It's beyond measurement. There is a breadth of it that you cannot see the width. You cannot see its extremities. Though you look, though you study, though you try to bring into focus with binocular, you cannot see the end of the love of God. 
If you look and listen to what the apostle says, he says, neither height nor depth nor length nor breadth. He says, if you look up into the heavens as far as your eye can see, when you've reached the very end of where your eye can see, that's when God, God's everlasting starts to take up its course. And it starts off when you look down into the depths, when you're looking down into some great cavern, as far as you can see is, as, is all that is physically possible, but then everlasting takes over. And what is being said here is the everlasting is equaling infinity. And God is saying, I love you, Israel. I have a passion for you. I have a true love, and I express that love to you. But my love is that infinite love of a mother's love. Now, as we look out and we discover this, I think we come to a place where somebody wrote this little verse years ago, how thou canst think of us so well, yet be the God thou art, is darkness to my intellect, but sunshine to my heart. How is it that God could love this person, this conglomerate? Look at the beginning verse, the first verse of this chapter, and you see that he says, I will be the God to all the clans, all the clans, all the families in the authorized version, all the families of Israel. I will be their God. I will be the one that loves all the families. When you start thinking, and I don't want to sound racial, and I don't want to be racial, and like to think I'm not racial, and yet I'm sure some racial things come up in my mind. But when you think of all the sharp business people in the world, the people that can say to you, it'll cost you a dollar and you end up paying four or five, and you wonder how it happened, you so willingly agreed to part with four or five when the announced price was a single dollar. Usually, we relate that sort of business to Jewish people. It's an unfair thing, but we do. And there is an element of truth. We talk very glibly when we purchase a car or some appliance that we jewed a person down. I think it's a vulgar, frightening expression, but we use it. I remember the first time I heard it. And I was quite shocked that anybody would say such a thing. But we use the expression easily. What do we mean? Usually we mean that in a cunning, almost unsavory way, we made our purchase. We're clever. In the book of Proverbs, we, we read that when a man has made the sale, he says, ha-ha, look, see what I did? But when he's selling, he says, oh boy, this is the greatest thing in the world. You've got to buy this. The salesman is a turncoat. He has two sides to him. We're all, in a sense, salesmen, one time or another. When we want to sell something, it's the best thing that was ever bought. It usually belonged to some person in royalty. We want to make sure that people understand all the things that are behind it. And uh, so long as they don't want us to stand behind it, and here it is. We want to sell it. We become quite good at selling 
We hide the cracks, the dings and the dents, and we sell whatever it is. Let's be real careful. The people that were Israel were murmuring people, always moaning and groaning. They were people that it was never right. Whatever it was was never right. The leadership was never right. The travel arrangements were never right. The menu was never right. The tabernacle was never right. God's laws were never right. God's method of leading them was never right. They murmured, they argued, they longed for the things of the past. They looked back at all the onions and all the wild garlic and they said, oh my, if we could only have that taste instead of this manna, this tasteless, bland food. Since emigrating to this country, I've often thought that the English must still think that they eat manna. Their food is to bland by comparison to other ways of eating. It's an interesting thing. They were forever moaning. They moaned over Moses, the first and the champion of leaders. They moaned and groaned about him. They moaned about Joshua. They moaned about the succession of leaders. They revised God's commandments and they, with their Pharisaic teachings, about 200 years before the Lord Jesus, they reinvented the law. They rearranged it. And they caused all sorts of havoc so that Jesus had to say, you know, you people have got a serious problem. You've got rules to keep rules that God never gave. And they still stayed with it. God speaks of these people over and over again as people that run off and do wicked things. They, they, they prostitute themselves to the world. They do all kinds of things that displease Him and cause Him great grief. And yet we read later on that there is an enormous yearning within the Lord God for on their behalf. And yet He says here, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I love you with a love that is infinite and it is called a mother's love. I love you. Let's look at that mother's love just for a moment. She can bear the, the ugliest child and she'll dress the child to look as pretty as she can. She can have the dumbest child and she'll talk of the achievements of the child as if it were the most intelligent in all the land. A mother's love, a child can spill the food all over the table and she'll clear it up on behalf of the child. She'll protect the child when other children beat on it. She'll be the one to drive off the beaters. A mother's love is all kinds of things and you ladies identify surely much better than any man could possibly identify. There is this inner thing, this inner feeling, this inner longing, this inner desire that wells up within a woman and she understands what a mother's love is. God says, that's how I love you. That's how I love you. But look at the next part of that verse 3. I have drawn you with loving kindness. The word to draw is very obvious and simple, like a magnet that draws, like a net that is cast for the fish in the sea and is drawn in, 
or like a line is cast from the pole and then is reeled in, God says, I have drawn you in, I have captured you, even though you didn't love me, even though you didn't want me, though you didn't know me, I loved you, I caught you, I drew you, I drew you to myself. That's my love. And I, said Jesus, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men, I will draw them, there will be a fascination about me. I will draw all men to me. Said Jesus, that fascination, that curiosity will cause men to look at me. They will remember at Easter that I died and rose from the dead. They will remember at Christmas I was born and I was born to save the world. It will be there. I will draw. I will draw. But look, I've drawn you with loving kindness. Once more we have to go to the, to the original language. What is it, what's this word? Loving kindness. And the curious thing is, in two places in the Bible, the same word that is translated here, loving kindness, is translated wickedness and reproach. In two places, in one it's translated wickedness and in the other it's translated reproach and then in various and several other places the same word is is translated mercy and kindness and goodness and favor it has another connotation and the last connotation is that of to bend over or bend down to bend over or to bend down. Now we know that there is no wickedness associated with God. We know that there is no reproach that can possibly be associated with God. But there is the time when the mother's love sees us in great need and does nothing. There is a time when the mother love understands that what we need is to experience what we are into and so the mother love lets us experience. Because of the experience, we are reproached. Because the experience is wicked, we receive the reproach. Then the mother, that mother love can show mercy and kindness and goodness and favor. We take the word favor, translated into the New Testament, and we read, and by the grace of God, by the unmerited favor of God. And so this word, loving kindness, comes perhaps this way, where the mother love has drawn us by allowing us to enter into wickedness, by causing a reproach to come upon the wickedness, and then to show the enormous mercy, the colossal kindness, the wondrous goodness, and the wonderful grace of Jesus. But to keep it here, in Jeremiah, the favor of God, it was unmerited, it wasn't warranted, it was the favor that God gave, and as God expressed that love, it's put together in English, in one hyphenated word, loving kindness. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Now what was the end of all this? After this child, after this woman, this wife, 
saw the loving kindness and was drawn to God the Father in this everlasting mother expressioned love, how is it that she responded? Hosea is an interesting little prophecy. There are various ways of understanding the book of Hosea and the commentators differ from their various points of view. Some say it wasn't actual, it was simply an illustration that Hosea wrote down. But Hosea said that God said to me, I want you to marry that very loose living woman and I want you to bring her into your house as your wife. And then I want the people to see how that wife wandered off and yet you always received her back. In fact, you went after her and brought her back. And so the picture is painted of the preacher or prophet marrying a woman that in some versions is called a prostitute and how she could not live a normal married life and had to continually go on these excursions and God says, and the message of Hosea is, this is a picture of Israel. What a shattering picture. And however you look at that, whether it was actual or just figurative, whether it was an illustration or an actual experience that Hosea went through, the picture is nonetheless vivid. How to respond to this love, this mother's love that is expressed, this passion that God has, this ordinary, plain love, this everlasting, infinite love that draws us with loving kindness. How do we respond? This is how Israel responded. Go into verse 19 and just trace down with me for a moment or two. After I strayed. I'm using the NIV here. After I strayed. There's not much point in saying to people, you're a sinner until they realize that they've sinned. There really isn't very much point in correcting a child until the child has done something in need of correction. But the Bible is consistent. The words here in the Hebrew are the same words that we read in other places. For instance, all we like sheep have gone astray after I had strayed like a sheep after I had gone in my own way, after I'd ignored the shepherd, after I'd ignored his pleas, after I'd ignored his commands, I strayed. After I strayed. One day, our dog went out, and though we called him, he wouldn't return. The irritating thing was that we could see him and he stopped and his ears turned towards us and then his head turned towards us and then if, as if to say, I don't care, he took off. There was a little rising temper amongst those of us that were calling, but he went. And he was gone a long time, we couldn't find him. It was now dark, so we weren't terribly concerned. He always knew his way back and if he didn't, we wouldn't have to worry about him too much longer. But later in the darkness, in the evening, we heard some gunshots. 
And within seconds, there was a whining at the door and a soft barking. And when I opened the door, he ran in and ran behind the sofa and he laid down and put his nose on the floor and his paws over his nose. When I told him to come out, he simply lifted his tail and flopped it on the floor. He wasn't going to move for anyone, for anything. He knew he'd strayed. There wasn't much point in me saying to him, don't go down the lane so far, you won't be able to hear my voice. He knew he'd strayed, and when he'd strayed, he was frightened because the reception he got from somewhere else was a very unpleasant one. And suddenly he was filled with fear, and suddenly he, he knew his way home, and he came a-running. And that's exactly the picture that we have here of the sheep that went astray. The sheep found himself in a position, or herself in a position, where fear overwhelmed. There was only one way out, back home. After I strayed. Look at the next movement. It's simply this. I repented. Now often, we talk about repentance and we don't really know what in the world we mean. We talk about repenting and we really have no comprehension of what to repent means. Most of the time when we talk about repenting, as Israel talked about repenting, it was a case of wishful thinking. Hey, I had a great scare down the road when I strayed. I've rushed home. I've made it. I'm in. Now I'll repent. I'll say to those in charge, Hey, forgive me. I need to repent. We'll somehow iron it all out and it'll somehow all sift down and I'll be all right. Simply put, Often repentance is not thought through. And when you don't think the thing through, it becomes idle chatter. Recently, as I've been studying again the 12th chapter of Matthew, I've been reminded again and again of the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees toward the Lord Jesus. How they came to him and they said, you know, the trouble with you is you have the wrong spirit. You have the spirit of Beelzebub. You're possessed. And Jesus says, that's not true at all. But they ignore him. They're convinced they're right. And then they come a little later and they listen to Jesus and Jesus says, you know, one of the problems you people have is you don't think. And they turn to Jesus and they say, um, good master. And it's as if Jesus says, see, why did I tell you? You don't think. A little while ago you called me the son of Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Now you call me good master. And there was a great deal of sarcasm in the voice of Jesus as he spoke this. You read it for yourself in the 12th of Matthew. And the sarcasm is, what you're saying in one sense is correct, only I'm not the master. Beelzebub is your master, but I'm not the son of Beelzebub. I am the son of God. In me is life. In me is the quenching of the thirst. 
In me is the bread of life. In me is the resurrection. In me is the door. The children of Israel would return to God many times as a child returns to a parent. How many times do you say to a child, don't go there? And the next thing you know, the child is there. Come here in a minute, says the child. Help me. Oh, soon I will, says the child. And the child procrastinates and procrastinates. And they see the parent gradually wearing themselves out and wearing themselves down. And then the child gets anxious. And then the child responds. And then the child says, Oh, I wish I'd been more helpful. I wish I'd been more understanding. I wish I'd listened. I wish I had caught on. This is Israel. They forever were saying, I stray. Now I repent. In the New Testament, when Jesus was teaching repentance and talking about repentance, he was using a word that means that you're so sorry you quit. That you're so sorry you quit. And we need to understand just the simplicity of the expression. We don't use the expression today. It's used in churches, but it's a cliche. And it has become something that we accept. We don't really know what it means, else we wouldn't live the way we live. To repent. I think it shines out in the area where King David wrote the 23rd Psalm. And he said, He restoreth my soul. The Hebrew of that is this, He turneth back my desires. When I repent, He turneth back my desires. When I come to Him, He turneth back my desires. When I come into the presence of God, He turneth back my desires. So that the earthly things are earthly and the spiritual things are spiritual. To repent is to understand that I come so near to God, I come so much into the presence of God, when I repent, I come into the very unction of the Spirit of God so that He can turn back my desires. He can turn them round. But look at the movement of verse 19. After I strayed, I repented. I came to understand. This is what Jesus was talking about in the 12th of Matthew. How needful it is to get the mind in gear. And of all people in in the world, we Christians are the the most forgetful people to put our minds in gear. And very often, we don't know what we believe. And we cram together things we've picked up here and there instead of reading the Scripture, instead of reading the volumes about the Scripture, instead of comprehending and wrestling with the Scripture until we accept it by faith or understand it with the mind as well. We accept what people say about the Scripture. 
But the, the writer here says, when I'd strayed, why I repented, and then I came to understand, my mind got into gear, and because my mind was in gear, I realized that my straying had caused sin, and my sin had caused, and then we come to the next consequence, it had caused a sh shame and humiliation. These two things, Shame and humiliation. People misunderstand these two words, and it's one reason I'm bringing them out. So that we can understand how to be ashamed. Why would a person be ashamed? Mostly because they strayed. Also because they didn't understand repentance, though they talked about it. And shame comes when the mind is in gear. Can't come otherwise. Listen to people tell their story. Listen to them rattle off all sorts of bits and pieces. And then trace back to the straying time. And you'll find very often a great shame. A shame. Israel had a tongue that wouldn't stop wagging. They murmured against God. And you may cry and say, wait a minute, preacher. The Bible doesn't say they murmured against God as much as it says they murmured against Moses. They murmured against the leadership. That's true. But if you go into the New Testament, you can see a correlation of what I'm saying. Jesus said, don't be surprised that they hate you. They hated me first. And they're going to hate you because you love me. And because Moses was God's man, they hated Moses sometimes, and therefore God says they hated me. The consequence of shame, the consequence of humiliation. But look at this, listen to this last part of how God speaks to Israel. In the authorized version, it talks about the bowels of love. But in the NIV, it says this, my heart yearns. My heart yearns. There is a great yearning within me. My heart yearns. There is something that just yearns toward that person. There is something that has got to express itself from deep, deep inside me. And there is a yearning from within. My heart, my inner person is yearning. And God says, I have a great yearning for this people. I have a great yearning for Israel. And we see this expressed so beautifully when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. And Jesus says, after Nicodemus says to him, you know, how do I get this life? How do I get this eternal life thing? What more must I do? And Jesus says, you must be born again. At the end of the discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus expresses this very point. He says, listen, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. God yearns. Look at the last expression. 
I have great compassion for him. This yearning expresses a compassion, a mother's love, a mother that deals with this child over and over and over again. The Apostle Paul says, you know, I come to you and I, I want to give you the meat of the word and I end up, I have to give you milk because you're too childish to receive the meat. This is God's great expression to man in the day in which we live. Here is the love of God. Here is the grace of God. Here is the wonder of God. But he says, it comes in morsels that you can deal with. Morsels that you'll understand. The mother love reaches and with great compassion prepares the food. Not too much for indigestion, but just enough for lots more energy. Not too much to cause sickness, but just enough to cause physical growth. I have great compassion for him. So tonight, ladies and gentlemen, have you heard God say anything about his love? That he has loved thee with an everlasting mother's love, an infinite, an inf a, love that, a mother's love that is infinite, that goes on into infinity? Have you heard God say that with loving kindness I have drawn thee? Have you heard anything of the loving kindness of God? Have you seen your own situation as Israel did after I strayed? I repented. I came to understand. I was ashamed. I was humiliated. My heart yearns for Him. I have great compassion for Him. Have you ever thought of it this way? That God so loved you that he drew you with a love. Have you watched the fishermen just out from the shore, sometimes waist deep, they take those fine nets and they cast them into the sea. They sink, the floats keep the top part of the net up and then gradually they draw the net in and the net comes and then there's a great frothing and a bubbling of the water. And beneath the froth and the bubbles we discover fish galore. There are fish everywhere and they keep pulling the net and gradually the fish are upon the, upon the sand. To see such a sight is to see God drawing us, drawing us into his presence. And when you get in his presence, what will you do? Well, you can be ashamed and humiliated, or you can receive his compassion and love and be alive. And be alive. Bow in prayer. Our Father, when we read such things about Thee, when we concern ourselves with the things that Thou art, when we fuss over the Scripture and understand some of its teaching, we tell Thee again and again, it's beyond our comprehension, that with such a mother's love Thou shouldst love us and with a passion Thou shouldst love us and that Thou shouldst even care. Oh, how we thank Thee with, with a love that we cannot calculate. How we praise Thy holy name that, with a love that we cannot in any way measure. Thou hast loved us with an everlasting love. We thank Thee this night for the elasticity of Thy love. We thank Thee so much that sometimes it will take us into terrifying experience, but Thy love is still there. We thank Thee that sometimes it will take us through deep waters, but Thy love is still there. And how we thank Thee 
that when the waters threaten to overflow us and threaten to engulf us and drown us, thy love never changes. We thank thee, Lord, for this love. May this love settle in our hearts and may we begin to understand what it means. For Jesus' sake, amen.